This is Ken Lubin, the host and founder of the Executive Athletes Podcast, and welcome to this week's episode. I want to thank everyone that has been listening, and thank you for the comments and feedback. They are awesome and are an incredible help in this journey to making this podcast better and better each episode. Once again, this is unscripted and unedited, as I believe it is the best way to get to really know the guest. Um, this week's guest is unique. Like I said earlier, they're always unique, but uh, this week's guest is actually someone I've been chatting with for some time. He's actually helped me out with some of my adventure racing nutrition and has coached some of the top athletes in the world. And his name's Brandon Dykstrahaus. And I'm sure many of you know who these guys are from the executive athletes, but he's pretty much a you know senior executive, jack of all trades, senior leader over at the feed. And after this, we can talk about you know a discount code, or we can chat about it now. But um, go to EA10, enter that into the feed, you get 10% off. So um, thank Brandon for that. And but we'll go a little bit into his bio. So Brandon graduated from the University of Vermont in 2000 and returned to international alpine skiing in hopes of earning a U.S. ski team nomination in 2002 for an Olympic berth. But after a successful campaign in 2001, Brandon's Olympic dreams came to an abrupt halt with a season-ending injury. After his injury, he jumped into coaching with both feet at the University of New Mexico or as a coach at the University of New Mexico. GMVS, which is Green Mountain Valley School, one of the ski academies in New England, BC Alpine, Ski Club Vale, and finally at the U.S. Ski Team, where he was responsible for coaching both Michaela Schifrin and was a consultant for Lindsey Vaughn prior to the Olympics in 2018. For the past 17 years, Dykster House has taken his competitive drive and lifelong love of sport and given back to the ski racing snow sport community through coaching, education, and venue development. And now it's helping from a professional perspective. And one of the things I saw on your LinkedIn profile, I love this quote, uh, fall in love with the process of being great. So tell us a little bit, you know, who the real story of Brandon Dykster House is from your perspective, and we can jump right into it. Sure thing. Well, first of all, Ken, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, obviously at the feed, we're big fans of what you do and love to help and be a part of anything you do. So thanks for that. Um, so a little bit about myself. I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the Air Force for 20 years. Both my grand, uh, grandparents flew B-52s in World War II, um, moved more or less every two to three years of my life. And I would say the only thing that's been consistent in my life is my love of skiing and being involved in, in ski sport. Uh, I would say from a young age, I had unbelievable passion, not a, not a huge amount of talent. Um, I like to, my, my friends refer to me as like the, the, the hardest worker for the, for the worst results, I guess. <laughs> There's yeah. worse things to be known for. <laughs> yeah, my best friend actually likes to pride himself on the least amount of effort for best results. So I guess we're a perfect fit. Um, but yeah, just, just been totally engaged and in love with sports for as long as I can remember. And um, obviously now I'm into my fourth de decade and having had multiple surgeries, I'm trying to keep that going as long as I can, but uh, looking for alternatives to keep my body healthy and energetic. And, and recently I just started my own family uh, January 1st. Congratulations. The perfect ski racing birthday. You can't get much better than that. You know, my wife, uh, I, was, I was away working 
in Aspen on the 31st and, and our little boy was scheduled to arrive on the 10th. So I thought I had plenty of time to get home. But at 6 p.m. on December 31st, she called me and she said, I can definitely hold him in for six more hours, but you need to get home soon. So <laughs> in, in reference to being born January 1st. Right. Amazing birthday. So. Oh, that's so funny. I've got a daughter who's January 7th, so that works out pretty well as well. So those are, oh, those are good birthdays to have for ski racing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What about, so what was the injury that took you out? You know, let's talk about, you know, sort of leaving school, going after that. Tell us a little bit about that journey. So I was in Stoneham, Quebec. Well, first of all, I, um, when I graduated high school, I was nowhere on the map in terms of a being a college ski racer, or B having any any uh, thoughts, realistic thoughts of racing on the World Cup. Um, thankfully, my dad was uh, totally into sport, and he allowed me to race for three years before going to college. And I was able to work myself into a position where I could get a scholarship to the University of Vermont, and ended up skiing for them. Um, I recall, and I remember this like it was yesterday, the guidance counselor at the Green Mountain Valley School, when I was, when I was a senior, she said, where do you want to apply for college? And I said, well, I'm going to go to University of Vermont and ski race farm. And she looked at me and almost laughed and said, unless you're on the U.S. ski team or about to make the U.S. ski team, you will never, ever race for them. And I looked at her and I was so disgusted, this woman who was supposed to be helping molding and fostering my passion and love of sport and education basically told me that something wasn't possible. Um, side note, four years later, I was winning a NCAA athlete in Alpine ski racing for my four-year tenure of any school. Um, and, it, and it just irks me that, that anyone would ever tell an aspiring athlete or student that something's not possible. So to this day, regardless of the ability level of the athletes that I work with, I will never say no to, to whatever their wild and crazy dreams are because I know it's just a limiting limitation. So I didn't answer your question, but. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a great story though. I think, you know, that sometimes that just sparks the fire to, you know, get pissed off and be like, F you, I'm going to go make this happen anyways. You know, it's funny. I talk a lot with athletes about vi visualization and, um, you can talk about visual, visualization, the powers of it, but unless you tie an emotion to that visualization, it, it's really uh, not very impactful. And just reliving that story, I have like, pretty strong emotions in my body right now, and like it definitely just turned up my adrenaline level. So um, yeah, the power of visualization tied to emotion. There you go. Um, so I graduated and uh, the Green Mountain Valley School, where I went to high school, they offered to allow me to come back and support my ski racing dreams. And my first year out of college, uh, I had what I would consider a very successful year. Um, Criteria-wise, I met qualifications for the U.S. ski team, but because I was 25 years old, I was told I was too old. Um, Which is crazy. Totally crazy, right? We have athletes on the World Cup now. We had an athlete last week, and French athlete, 37 years old, was was third in the GS in, in Bansko. So just goes to show uh, we have a lot more, a lot more in us than skiing at 25. But uh, so I came back second year 
after graduating college. And in December, we were in Stone, Quebec. It was a super cold day. And I remember uh, pretty deep into the training session, I came down and in a right-footed turn, I lost my outside ski, put all my weight on my left foot. My left foot didn't happen to be parallel at the time. It was kind of uh, internally rotated. And the ski loaded up on really aggressive snow and my femur or my, my tib-fib uh, snapped. It was an open wound inside my ski boot. So, uh, yeah, kind of gruesome injury. I think it, my bone was in about 18 different pieces. And uh, that <laughs> that put a halt on my ski racing <laughs> dreams. I'm sure that's not just something easy that you can uh, that you can just stitch back. We actually had a kid this weekend do the same thing, just above his boot, and a fourteen year old GS comes around the turn and hits a big bank of snow. He didn't set up for the turn because he thought it was, you know, it was only the second gate and wasn't ready for it. And boom, it took actually like three or four kids out. It was crazy. Holy cow! Well, yeah. this one was actually my second second um tib fib fracture on the same leg and i uh, again i remember this one pretty vividly yeah, sure. too. i was lying on the ground and the ski patrol came up and uh and i was yelling obscenities get me to the effing bottom now i need drugs um it was just so painful and the guy's like you need to calm down we'll get there and i'm like no you don't understand <laughs> we right. have to go right now your uh, lower leg isn't connected to your upper leg anymore at that point <laughs> No, it was, uh, thankfully, I had a French-Canadian coach at the time, so he was able to get a buddy to come perform my operation, and I remember lying in the hospital, and uh, I still had my ski boot on, and it was, I want to say, negative 20 Celsius that day, so the plastic was super cold and couldn't get my boot off. And I remember the docs or the nurses, whoever was there, physician's assistant, trying to pull my boot off. And I just remember being in so much pain that I reached down and yelled some obscenities and ripped the boot off myself. And I was like, let's get this thing going. It was, uh, it was a pretty traumatic experience. Oh, my God. And, yeah, stiff plastic ski boots in the cold is, is crazy. I'll, I'll go on a second story there. A friend of mine did a similar thing, but he was in the ER and one of the doctors was a skier and he created a tool, sort of like a caulking gun type thing that goes into the back of your ski boot and pulls, you know, like you crank it out and it takes your foot out of your boot so you don't have to cut the boot off and everything else. He said, this was like the most brilliant invention he's ever had for injuries <laughs> just like that. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I could have used one. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So you, okay. So you came out, you had the injury, you're trying you know, you had met all the ski team criteria. They said you're too old, at, you know, at 25, which we all know is crazy. And then you jump both feet into coaching. You went, what, first to University of New Mexico. Tell us about what it was like coaching at that level and, and everything else. You know, so I rolled in uh, University of New Mexico, and at the time, I didn't know much about the program. Uh, I knew the head coach, George Brooks, who had been there for 34 years. I knew him uh, pretty well, and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to focus my energy on, on a master's degree. If I put as much into that as I do in, in the skiing, then, you know, I can start a new career, yada, yada, yada. So. Um, I got to New Mexico, and this was kind of my first lesson in the power of belief. So in the athletic um, 
the athletic building where the ski team, the basketball team, football, baseball, everyone resides. The first office in the complex was the ski team. And this about my second week there, I thought, wow, we should we should probably be 2004 national champions. And at the time, skiing, um, well, actually, no sports in New Mexico history at the time had ever been a national champion. And I decided to print up some flyers that said 2004 national champions, UNM ski team. And I put them on our office window. I put them in our van, um, anywhere I could find, you know, I printed out 25 of these things. And my boss comes in who, like I said, had been at the university for 34 years. And he said, what are you doing? You can't do this. You can't have unrealistic expectations. You know, what if, what if the athletes aren't able to achieve this? <laughs> and I looked at him and I, I'm, I was pretty naive at the time, but I said, well, how are we going to achieve it if we don't believe it can happen? And uh, so a after some finagling, we ended up going to ski races in our, our team van, every hotel we stayed in, uh, our tuning rooms, we would post these signs and it kind of became the running joke. Uh, amongst the, the Western Tour that, hey, New Mexico is thinking they're going to win the NCAA championships this year. Um, so uh, another side note on that story, I had this athlete, Jennifer Delich, at the time. She was a senior uh, Canadian who had skied on the development team in Canada. And in November, we went skiing. Uh, I want to say we went to Copper or somewhere just for some early season training. Uh, but we were up on the hill and she made some turns and I was just like blown away. I'm like, holy shit, you are really, really talented as a skier. And I said, you absolutely should be able to win. And she looks at me and she goes, you know, I've never won before and I'm a senior. Why do you think that? I'm like, I know you can win. Look at what you can do on skis. So that season, she was fifth place, fourth place, third place, second place. And we get, we get to the NCAA finals. Um, and she was our she was our lead female athlete. And the day before the GS event, we're sitting on the side of the hill, and she's in tears. She hadn't been able to finish the training run, and she's like, "I'm not racing. I'm done." And I'm looking at her like, "Yeah, you can't do this. No, you have to race." <laughs> right. And uh, and again, this was my first year coaching, so I sent the head coach home, and I said, "We're going to ski until you feel good about this." And so we went out and skied. I bet we skied three, four hours, just run after run and tried to find the love of skiing again. And the next day, so it, it, I should let the listeners know that at this point, I still wanted to be an athlete more than I wanted to be a coach. I was, what can I do to be a ski racer again? I was just so into it, so passionate about it. And I hadn't really connected the dots um, as a coach. So fast forward to Jenny's, her last, her last Giants home in, in her NCAA career. First run, she's fourth, um, which was quite good. Second run, she's skiing down, and I'm thinking to myself, she's going to win. She is going to win. And she gets across the finish line, and she ends up winning her last race of her NCAA career. And it was that moment on the side of the hill where I was like, wow. I think I could really get into this coaching thing. This is kind of fun. Uh, so 
she won that day and the team ended up winning their first and only national championship in school history um, a couple of days later. And that, that really locked, locked in my love for coaching and the powers of belief and helping others achieve uh, levels that, that I wasn't able to achieve. And that's, and that's amazing. And, you know, how did you, and I'm sure, you know, we can get into this, but it's really helping people find, you know, or the power of belief in themselves, you know, and it seems like it started with her. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, I had growing up, I always had great coaches and great mentors. I don't know if I had people that told me so explicitly that you can do this and this is why. Um, or this is how they, they helped me with the fundamentals. They helped me with the process, but there was always that missing piece. I always thought that the gap from where I was and where I needed to be was so big. And then having that first year and now two decades of it later, standing on the Hill and watching how, how small the difference is between, uh, dreams and reality, uh, I think that's been my biggest gift, athletes that I've been able to work with, just sharing that, hey, you're way closer than you think. These hurdles aren't as big as you think, and this is how we're going to get there. And uh, fortunately, I've worked with some incredible athletes that have been able to do it, and hopefully I've added a little value along the way. But for me, it's really just piecing the dots, and I'm sure you see it in your world all the time that you know, the, the, the gap isn't huge, but the belief has to be huge to overcome that little gap. Oh, it's crazy. It's really just understanding and believing in yourself. And I think more people believe in other people than they actually do in themselves. And if you can have someone help you believe in yourself or you can innately believe in yourself, it's amazing what you can do. I think that's, that's step one to any success. Right. No, I, I totally agree with you there. Right. You know, it's, and that's, what's, you know, crazy about it. And fortunately or unfortunately, even you know, that athlete you're talking about, she wasn't believing in herself. And it's like, Hey, let's just step back. Let's have some fun. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I can actually do this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pretty transformative. It's, you know, I think that's why we see a lot of these relationships where you have, um, parents get into coaching and they're able to so positively positively impact their child's success because I don't think there's anyone who believes in you as much as your parents do and nor or is there anyone who can push you as much as your parents are able to push you so right um, sometimes that's a winning combination or it can be a disaster <laughs> <laughs> it, it can be both. It can be both. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's sort of move into, you know, throughout your career, you ended up, you know, most recently in, in the coaching world, coaching Michaela Schifrin, who's, you know, arguably the best skier of all time right now. You know, what was it like coaching her? What was it like coaching at that level? Um, you know, that, that has to be amazing. You know, that was, that was pretty wild. Uh, just to backtrack a bit, I had a, a pretty great run um, in British Columbia with one of their development teams. And over a three-year span, we put 12 people on the World Cup and a bunch of athletes that weren't, I wouldn't say a fraction of the talent of Michaela, but they had the team and the drive and the community support to really do great things. 
Um, when I left BC, I thought, hey, I, I think I'm done with coaching. I'm going to move on and see what I can do. And uh, I actually took a position at Ski Club Vale as an athletic director and was trying to really drive high performance in different areas, looking, looking at the process and seeing what can we do better, you know, whether it's sleep or travel or whatnot to just help athletes achieve a higher level. Um, and during that time, I was still making uh, some instructional videos on YouTube kind of comparison top World Cup athletes. And I was focusing a lot on Michaela just because I saw great potential in her giant slalom. She was already the world's best slalom skier. Um, and, and so I did a lot of, a lot of these videos comparing, comparing her giant slalom. But long story short, uh, I got a text, uh, I want to say it was December 2014 from a mutual friend and mentioned something about Michaela and there might be a change and would I be interested? And, and I wrote back and I said, you know, if Michael Jordan asked you to rebound basketball, there's only one answer, right? Definitely yes. Right. Um, so I jumped on with Michaela uh, and her team in 2015. And our first, my first race with her were world championships in Vail or Beaver Creek, her hometown. So not a whole lot of pressure there. She was defending world champion. 45 family members were in town. 50,000 U.S. fans came to watch her win. Um, I think she's, minus Lindsay, she's the only athlete that I've ever worked with where second place just isn't acceptable. Um, they had a start. You know, I think their family, they've done so much right in terms of really focusing on the little things. So she prides herself on sleep. And all the, all the data we see now on high performers is not only uh, consistency of bedtime and wake time, but your sleep hygiene and really getting, I mean, it's, it really is our biggest gift. I think Lance Armstrong said something to the fact of, yeah, uh, you know, supplementing with sleep is the best sort of doping out there. We all know that he obviously did more, but um, I think there's something to be said about quality sleep and consistency in sleep. And so that was one of the areas where she really excelled. And she is, these high performers like Lindsay's, Michaela's, um, the world beaters, if you will, they're so sure of their ability and sure of the path to get there that they're going to get there regardless. I mean, right. They're I, that I, driven. They're just going there no matter what, with or without you. With or without you. I mean, they're the only thing you can do is mess them up. They're just, they're that good. How do you think they become that good? Just talent or is it mental toughness, fortitude, belief in themselves? You know, I know we were chatting about that earlier, but you know, what, well, how do you, how do they believe that they're that good? Right. Or how do they have that confidence? That's I think, or is it innate? Is it a learned thing or is it innate? You know, I think there are two different types of characters. So the Lindsay, Lindsay and Michaela both have very involved parents. Um, Eileen Schifrin, Lindsay's mother, or Michaela's mother, has been with her since day one and every day since. She really is the driving force. Um, she can push her daughter like no coach I've ever seen push an athlete. I mean, 
when you think she is physically and mentally exhausted and can't possibly do more, mom can squeeze that last bit of last bit of juice out of her. Um, and then Lindsay as well. I met Lindsay in Mount Hood when she was nine years old. And at the time, her dad, who was a former U.S. ski team member, he was on the hill chasing her down, down the hill, run after run, screaming at her at nine years old. Same sort of that that drive that only a parent can do. Um, obviously, uh, there were times in Lindsay's career where Lindsay and her father weren't on the best of terms. I think they reconciled that. And I think that at the end of the day, you have to evaluate, is it what's the end goal? Do you want to have a long, long loving relationship with your child? And um, so, yeah, that, I, I think that the listeners can decide that on right. their own. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's crazy. But they, they do, but those guys just have that internal drive, that extra gear. It sounds like that, you know, most people, normal people don't. Crazy drive. And then, and then I've met athletes. I haven't met athletes that of their caliber but still world class um with zero parental involvement and, and and they're the ones that are most intriguing to me like what was the stimulus uh that really drove their desire to want to excel and to have that singular focus to excel and whether it's skiing or, or or whatever i just think it's like this day and age with social media and gaming and and just just all the distractions i it's harder to come by um i've noticed with younger athletes uh there are just so many options if if skiing doesn't go well i can do this or i can do that or and i kind of wonder that's my my driving force like how do you recreate a high performance scenario for those that that have a lot of options. Right. No, and I think everyone's becoming so autonomous, right? Versus the whole team world. Everyone's sort of going in their own direction. And I think probably there's been no time in history where they've been able to do that, right? You know, kids nowadays can start launching their own business on YouTube at 10 years old, <laughs> right? Totally. Pulling in seven figures. And and I think I think school and education and how things and college is all going to be changing here and you know, probably in the next 10 years of, okay, what do you do and how do you go about it? It's you know, even Silicon Valley, right? They're, telling, they're paying kids not to go to college, come work for me because we can right. actually teach right. real, you know, real-time experience. And I think one of the things you know, sort of chatting about this is you know, college is more of a study of the past where the companies and you know, entrepreneurship is a study of the future. And I think that's you know, where a lot of these guys are going and they're starting to see that. You know, I have that, I have that conversation with my wife almost daily um, with our newborn son. We talk a lot about financing and setting away money for a college-like experience. But at the end of the day, if, if he grows up and uh, he wants to be, uh, I don't even know, it, jump out airplanes or something, you know, yeah. parachutes or wh- whatever. Like, is that money better invested following his passion versus doing what I did or his mother did just because that's what the social norm is? And um, I have a hard time believing that spending a quarter million or a half million, whatever it's going to be at the time, on something that he may or may not be interested in is the right right use of resources. Right. No, I know. It's sort of nuts. 
Let's step back to sort of, you talked a lot about visualization. What are your thoughts on visualization in sport, right? It sounds like you're pretty passionate about that. You know, I think for me, uh, having been injured so many times, it was a way to train when I wasn't able to train. It was a, a means of continuous improvement when I wasn't able to go skiing with my friends or be in the weight room because my leg was in a cast. Um, and, you know, I think at this point in my life, uh, I don't necessarily call it visualization. I call it more meditation for how I use it, but it really is that recentering and getting rid of the distractions and trying to remove or suppress cortisol levels so that you can be an efficient, you know, uh, functional human being. Uh, but for athletes, there really is no better way. You can, you can get the muscle and nerve recruitment through visualization that you get in sports specific moves. And, um, if you have someone who like a Mikhail, like a Lindsay, who's willing to invest off the hill or off their, their, um, off the playground, so to speak, they can really make gains on their competition by, by putting energy into that. Right. No. And don't they, a lot of them too, use video games as well, right? For, the, for that same type of thing. You know, you can do it video games right now. There's a lot of transcranial brain stimulation devices like the Halo. Um, right. Been looking into that space. It's uh, definitely outside the box, but I think there's something to it. Red Bull and the military invested quite a bit of money in research into, you know, can we create a uh, better level of focus can we make directed focus uh it, really exciting where the technology is going what do you think about the halo thing i was actually on a i was speaking at um something with one of the founders of the halo device and it was fascinating you know to see what what they're doing um you know with that what are your thoughts on it you know we actually have one um we have the first rendition and it uh <laughs> it's different all right you know you feel sensation in your skull and uh at the time when i was using it i had a decent amount of hair so it was kind of hard to get the connection <laughs> um i was i was pretty heavily into it based on the research for endurance athletes right now i'm a middle-aged hack on a bike i love to race any and every type of bike that i own um but i'm also kind of a big boned uh, I call myself the fat guy in a bike race just because I'm 170 pounds and not 140 pounds. Um, and just for the listeners, when I was a ski racer, I raced at 210 pounds. Um, so quite skinny compared to how I used to be, but just not uh, for the bike racing community. I think the research is coming. I don't know if we're there yet on exactly, exactly which parts of the brain that we need to stimulate to get the corresponding response, whether it's um, perceived rate of exertion, or if like if you're a pilot or doing gaming, and you want to have a, a different level of focus, um, I think we'll be there soon, and it's it's exciting and interesting. But I don't know if we're totally there yet. Right. No, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. There's so much stuff out there now. I think. I was talking to someone earlier that about technology. Technology is still at its infancy, right? Even modern medicine is only 
20 years old or you know 30 years old in comparison to where this where things are going i think it's it's such exciting times i think the gray area is going to be is it doping is it not doping is this perform you know, is it performance enhancing or not right i think it's it's almost going to get to the point where you're just going to have to open everything up because they're going to be connecting electrodes and nuclear power generators that you know go through your brain and power your legs next who knows right but that's sort of what's starting to happen yeah, I, I agree. I don't know how you can say something is performance enhancing and something isn't. You know, yesterday, I don't know if you've been following the Nordic World Championships, but nine athletes were busted in a doping ring. Um, and there's this great journalist, Hajo Seppelt. He works for AR, ARD television in Germany, and he, he does a lot of the investigative research. Um, he was the one who helped expose the Russian conspiracy he had a piece on Johannes Duer, who was uh, Austrian biathlon team in 2014 that just came out maybe a month or two ago. Uh, but basically, they, they, they exposed this doping ring yesterday where they actually caught an athlete with an IV uh, transfusing his own blood into his arm. So no gray area there. He was actually no. caught in the act. Um, but on, on the flip side of that, uh, I would imagine that everyone who listens to this podcast and majority of people, high achievers out there, like everyone wants to perform better. Everyone wants to gain an edge. And I think we're somewhat unrealistic to say that we shouldn't be pursuing these options. I mean, we do everything we can to optimize our food. We have cooling mattresses and blackout shades to optimize our sleep. We are doing intermittent fasting to, uh, to help our bodies detoxify. All these things are in an effort to enhance performance. And I don't know about you, but I want to live as long and as healthy of life as possible. I want to be able to do all the stuff my dad did with me, with my kids, my grandkids. And I know that with an aging body and one that's had many surgeries, like, ah, I need supplements to be able to optimize and perform or live uh, in a comfortable, pain-free way. So I think we're in for radical change in the next couple of years. I think we're slowly getting more open to the idea of what science can provide. I was driving home just the other day, and on my street corner, it says testosterone replacement therapy and uh, these types of things. Now, I'm not an advocate yet for uh, biohormone replacement therapy. But as we learn more and and the consequences or maybe the benefits of it, then uh, I would definitely be open to the conversation and and seeing what it can provide. No, and that's, yeah, exactly, I think. And two, this is a perfect segue into what you guys are doing at the feed now, right? You know, you're pretty much, you know, you're a senior leader there. It's been endurance, food, and supplements for sport and everything, but you're starting to get into the anti-aging world and the CBD world. Tell us a little bit about that because I think you know, a lot of the listeners are, very, are sort of in the same demographic you and I are in, if not, you know, if not older, and I think everyone's looking for that performance edge. Tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing there because it's pretty exciting. You know, we're we're really excited about our, our growth and opportunity at the feed. For the past five years, we've really been uh, a major player 
for endurance athletes fueling for racing and training. Um, you know, where we're able to separate ourselves from like the Amazons or bike shops or corner stores is that we have coaches basically 24 seven that can offer support, um, custom tailor nutritional program that meets the needs of your training and racing. Now, uh, being 43, I'm 43 now and our founder is also 43. We're, we're starting to feel father time, if you will, and slowing down and having less energy to do the things we've been able to do. And, uh, there's quite a bit of, uh, research coming out now, whether it's uh, Dr. David Sinclair out of Harvard or Sander Kaufman, who wrote the Kaufman Protocol, different um, strategies to slow down aging. And a lot of this is molecular supplementation stuff to help detoxify the body, anti-inflammatories, cognitive function. Um, I would say we're in the infancy right now of that at the feed, but definitely is our next big push. What can we do both in terms of testing, um, supplementation, and, and protocol to allow uh, our customers that have been with us for a while now to, to keep living in a capacity that they're accustomed to? Obviously, in your 20s and 30s, you can you can push the body and you can get back up the next day and do it again. Um, but we all know in fortunate circumstances, as you age, things start to slow down. Our mitochondria isn't working as efficiently as it once did. And any way to try to enhance that or optimize that, uh, we think is a good thing. Well, that's, that's awesome. And what, what are some of the supplements you guys are you know, doing some research on or that you guys are you know, providing or selling via the feed for that? You know, a lot of the mitochondrial stuff. I think that's probably some of the most exciting stuff. Yeah, you know, the first one we brought on was True Niagen. Um, True Niagen is an NAD precursor. Uh, for the listeners that don't know, when you're 50 years old, you have about 50% less Niagen in your, or NAD in your body than you had when you were 20. And that's really uh, the fuel for your mitochondria. So uh, just in terms of pure energy, it, it provides you capacity to do more but it also allows the cells like think of it as a trash dump you can only put so much trash on a plot of land before you need to clear it out and and add space to to bring more trash and that essentially is what our mitochondria does it allows it to detox those cells and run efficiently and um so that, that's the first product we've brought in we're bringing in a couple different nad precursors uh for the customers to try and then we're looking at stuff a lot of anti-inflammatory roots um, different molecules that specialize in detox um, because at the end of the day when the body starts to get inflamed that's what leads to illness and disease and um, not only that if you're a runner a biker hiker um, anyone with inflammation in the joints or back knows the discomfort uh, that that brings on and it just really starts to slow things down. Oh, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. So no, Brandon, we could probably go on for hours and hours. We can do a, you know, do a backup here. I love chatting about this stuff and, and it's been awesome to have you on and hearing your perspective from so many different angles. So thank you. 
My, my pleasure. Always a pleasure to catch up. And uh, yeah, I can't wait till I can join you on one of your adventure races. I know it'll be a blast. And to anyone who's a listener, again, like I said earlier, the feed is offering a 10% discount. Um, you can use EA 10 in the cart and you'll get 10% off. So Brandon, thank you for setting that up. And it was awesome to have you on board. Great. Thanks, Ken. Guys, come check us out. We'd love to talk to you. And uh, yeah, keep, keep pushing the envelope. Perfect. And if anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email me at kenintheexecutiveathletes.com. And like Brandon said, go push the envelope and crush it today. Talk to you later.